And we are grateful for our Awana ministry, and um, it kicks back off uh, this Wednesday evening. <clears throat> so parents, if you want more information or you already have uh, your children signed up to be a part of Awanas. If you'd like more information about Awanas, uh, we'd love for you to come to the parent meeting uh, this Wednesday evening uh, at 6 o'clock. Uh, we also have a dinner provided before at 5.30. You just have to go online, sign up, let us know that you're coming. Uh, it's $5 per person, but no more than $20 per family. Uh, so that way you can you can come have a meal at 5.30 and then just transition right into our Wednesday night uh, ministries at 6 o'clock. Uh, we also would love if you are looking for a place to get plugged in and serve here at the church to get plugged in on Wednesday night to help serve in Awanas uh, as well. And then on the 30th, uh, all of our new Wednesday night activities will kick off with uh, several Bible studies that you will see in the bulletin that you received. We also have two community groups uh, that meet on Wednesday evenings that if you're looking for a community group and Wednesday night works best, uh, for you and your family uh, to come and to get plugged into as well. And then for your kids, we have uh, WANAs. And so we would love for you to make Wednesday nights here at Community a part of your week. This morning, we're going to uh, continue on in our uh, journey series, looking at the life and the ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, and we have found ourselves at a, uh, a moment in the ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ uh, where what is recorded is probably the most famous sermon uh, in the history of the world. Uh, we see the, the Word of God, the living Word, preaching the Word. Uh, now, we looked at last week the reality that this is probably something that he preached in many settings, uh, but this specific setting is recorded here in Matthew's Gospel. And we are taking time over the next months uh, to look at the Sermon on the Mount. And so last week, we kind of started at, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount so that uh, we could lay the foundation with the understanding that these aren't things that you do to earn salvation. These are things that are being produced in your life through the sanctifying process because you have already been saved through faith in Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to look at the Beatitudes. Now, this series is really a couple years' worth of uh, sermons. Uh, we're approaching the, the first year of being in uh, this series. Uh, and to make sure that it doesn't go five years, uh, we're going to do a 30,000-foot overview of the Beatitudes today, okay? These aren't going to be, they could very easily be a sermon over each Beatitude, uh, but today we're going to do a 30,000-foot flyover of the Beatitudes. So if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, in a message that is very uh, um, articulate and um, very creative in the title, the Beatitudes. And what we will find there is we will find a section of Scripture that many individuals are familiar with, even outside of the church. Many individuals are familiar with these blessed statements. And so we find that the, the Beatitudes actually begin proper in verse 3, but we see that Matthew shows uh, some key facts about this in verses 1 through 2. Allow us to read God's Word together and then let us unpack it. God's Word says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, uh, we see that Jesus is, is sitting down on top of a mountain. He takes the uh, posture that a rabbi or a teacher of that day would, would have taken, and his disciples are coming to learn from him. Now, we will see that there's an extension uh, of, of that. It's not just his disciples. We'll see that there is a large group of individuals that have gathered alongside of these disciples uh, to Jesus. And Jesus, he takes this posture in, in a sense by being on this mountain uh, as a picture of the new Moses, uh, the greater Moses, the perfect Moses, as Moses received the law for God's people uh, on the mountain and came and, and gave them the law, what we see is that Jesus is showing uh, here in this that he is going to be leading a spiritual exodus in a way that is further unpacked by Matthew throughout his gospel, uh, but that he is not giving a law or a list of rules that is to be fulfilled for salvation. What he is showing us is that 
This, again, is the ethics of those that are already a part of the kingdom. Now, what is unpacked further in Matthew and what has been unpacked previously is that there is no way that you can do this in and of yourself. There is no way that you can live out the Christian life apart from Jesus. And so last week, we looked at the reality that you don't just come to to Christ in faith for salvation, but you remain abiding in him for sanctification and for the sustaining power to live out the life he has called you to here in this broken world. And so he takes this posture of teaching and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And may God bless the reading of his word. Now, before we get into the three main points that I want to impress upon your hearts here this morning from God's Word as we look at this section of the Sermon on the Mount that is aptly titled the Beatitudes. I think it's important for us to understand what is a beatitude. What, what is that? Uh, it comes from the Latin word beatus, uh, but when we look at the, the Hebrew understanding and therefore the, the, the Greek uh, uh, rendering of this idea of blessed, Uh, We need to really understand what is Jesus saying when he says that we are blessed. And therefore, we need to understand what he is not saying when he says that we are blessed. Some translations will translate blessed with happy. Uh, Is one translation better than the other? Are we blessed? Are, are Are we happy? I think that the better translation, although if your translation says happy, that is not actually wrong in what it is the translation of the Greek word that we have uh, 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 translated here, blessed in my translation. Uh, they're, they're both accurate. Uh, makarios is the Greek word that uh, is translated blessed here. But to understand exactly what it is that Jesus is saying and what God wants us to know in the reality that we are blessed, we need to understand in Hebrew there are two schools of thought of the word blessed. Uh, Now, they overlap each other, but there are two kind of distinct thoughts of what it means to be blessed. And you find that in the Old Testament. One is Barak, and what that means is that God's favor is upon an individual. Uh, We may pray uh, in the sense of, uh, Lord, bless this house. Uh, Lord, bless my kids. What you are asking for in that prayer is you are asking for God to do something, that for God to move uh, in a specific area by placing his favor upon that specific thing that you're requesting. But there is another word in Hebrew that is translated into our English word blessed, and that's ashraya. And this word here is more of the idea of human flourishing. It is more of the idea of shalomness, uh, peacefulness, wholeness. It is what we have the word in Psalms 1 when we read that the psalmist writes that that blesses the man who doesn't uh, sit with scoffers, that doesn't sit among the wicked, uh, that that individual will have peacefulness, that individual will have wholeness, that individual will have shalomness, that individual will be blessed. Now, what is interesting is that in the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the word that is given uh, to the idea of human flourishing is Mercurius. Uh, and that is the word that is placed here in blessed. In other words, yes, it has this, this connotation of God's favor because you can't truly have peace. You can't truly be whole. You can't truly have shalomness, if you will, apart from God's favor upon you. They are overlapping and they are embedded together. But maybe you've heard this statement that God is more concerned with your holiness and your happiness. 
And that's not a bad statement. That's not a statement that is false. I do think that God is more concerned with our holiness and our happiness if we understand happiness to be a worldly terminology in the sense that has been perverted or convoluted to mean happy in the sense that uh, material things will make you happy, comfort will make you happy. We'll see here that we are blessed even when we are persecuted, even when we find ourselves in broken states and broken places that we are still blessed because I think unfortunately what happens as just as evil as the prosperity gospel is in the life of the church so too I think there's a mentality of a poverty gospel that says you to in order for you to be holy you have to sacrifice happiness in order for you to be happy you must sacrifice holiness and what God's word shows us here in the Beatitudes with this idea of being blessed is that both are one and the same that in fact when you actually are living in accordance with God's word you will be at your most joyous you will be at your most peaceful that you will be at your most uh, um, uh, complete and whole. And this picture is really the picture of what humanity was created to be before the fall. When God created individuals and created humanity, these beatitudes were designed and desired by God to be in the life of this uh, of, of his creation. And so therefore, the beatitudes are really speaking of the true humanity that God created each of us to walk and live in. Now, again, you can't do that as an individual who is embedded with the sin nature. You can't do that apart from God. You need a new heart. And you yourself are not the one that can change your heart. That you must come to faith in Christ Jesus. And so as he teaches his disciples, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he's saying these ought to be present in your life through the work of the Holy Spirit and the sanctifying power of God Almighty in your life. So with our understanding that what this talks about is it talks about not only God's favor but the human flourishing then we get a better picture of this idea that holiness and happiness in God's economy actually go hand in hand. You don't have to sacrifice holiness to be happy, and you don't have to sacrifice happiness to be holy. In fact, when you are truly abiding in Christ Jesus, both will be produced because God's favor upon your life should produce joy. And that joy should produce in you a greater obedience in which God's favor now comes upon you in greater ways. With that being established, let us unpack three truths that we find in the Beatitudes. The first is this. The Beatitudes are already not yet. Just like the kingdom of God is already not yet. The Beatitudes are already not yet. These are kingdom ethics that life of uh, disciples should pre-produced and should be evident for each and every follower of Jesus Christ. But yet when we read this, we see that we have not perfected this. I know I haven't. I know I haven't perfected the statement of being a peacemaker. Uh, there, there, there are times that I have not uh, truly lived out what God's word calls to be a peacemaker or to be merciful. Sometimes uh, there, there's not mercy that I show to other individuals. Sometimes I can be harsh and sometimes I can be critical. And so this idea of the Beatitudes is that even though you are a follower of Jesus Christ and these things should be present in your life, these are fruits that should be present in your life, uh, there's a a tinge of understanding that it is already in place but not yet. Hebrews 2, 7 through 9 does a good job of explaining this reality of already not yet. Because again, these these are kingdom ethics and therefore the kingdom of Christ is already Not yet. Hebrews 2, 7 through 9 says this. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. So he has been crowned. That is the reality right now that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ sits upon the throne as King of kings and Lord of lords. He has been crowned with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It is a reality that one day Christ 
Christ will return and he will put all things underneath his feet. That is a reality that is uh, true in this moment right now. There's nothing that can change that. There's nothing that can stop that. But yet, not everything is in subjection to him right now. Just look at the world around you. The kingdom is already and not yet. And if these are kingdom ethics for individuals that are in the kingdom, then the reality of them are already and not yet. 1 John 3, 2 does a good job of showing us this reality as well. Beloved, we are God's children now. If you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. Now, I think we have a misunderstanding oftentimes of that because we are created beings of God that, that everybody's a child of God. Well, we're all children of God. No, God's word says that if you have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you're a child of wrath. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ that we are adopted into the forever family of God Almighty. Not everybody is a child of God. Only those that have placed their faith and trust in him. He says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So we are God's children now, but the fullness of that meaning has not yet appeared. Not until Christ returns when we see him as he is, and we shall be like him. Now with that. In reality, that speaks to our lives here and now. And the first thing, if you're taking notes, is this. In Christ's first coming, we see the kingdom's inauguration. We see the kingdom's inauguration. When uh, we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the inauguration of the kingdom of God Almighty. That's why Jesus would say, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven has been inaugurated, but... We also see in Christ's second coming that the, the kingdom will be consummated. So in Christ's second coming, we see the kingdom's consummation. That's when, when all things are put right. That's when all, all evil is eradicated. That is when all sin is removed, that all things are put in subjection underneath his feet. Now, we live in between those two. We live in between the inauguration and we live in between the consummation. And so for us, as followers of Jesus Christ, in between the two, we are called to devote ourselves to the kingdom's communication. So in between the inauguration and the consummation, we are to dedicate ourselves to the kingdom's communication. And we do that on two levels. We do that with our lips and our lives. We do that in an enunciation. We do that in announcing the gospel. We do that in the spreading of the gospel. But we also do that by living out our faith in such a way that the fruit of the work of God in our lives is evident for those that are living in a broken and a fallen world separated from God by their sin. And that is what the Beatitudes is speaking of. That these things ought to be present in our lives. These things we ought to be growing in our lives. And so in a, a kind of a roundabout way, God's word speaks of the reality that we are saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. So justification, as it has been said, is um, the release or uh, the, the, the release from the penalty of sin. And sanctification is the releasing of the power of sin. And glorification, which is to come when we step into heaven, is the removing of the presence of sin in our lives. And so we live in between the inauguration and the consummation, and we are called to communicate the gospel through our lips and through our lives. Secondly, the Beatitudes are attitudes we are to be. Now, that's really bad grammar. The Beatitudes are attitudes we are to be, not attitudes we are to have, because that means that you don't apply them. You can have something and never actually put it into use. You can be a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word. These are attitudes that we are to be. So our lives should be marked by us being poor in spirit, by us mourning, and we'll look and unpack each of these and what they mean. And it ought to be marked with us being meek and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and, and being merciful and pure in heart and to be peacemakers. All of these things ought to be present in the life of each and every believer. Each and every one of them should be present in our lives. These are attitudes that we are to be. Not just attitudes we are to have, but attitudes that we are to be. Philippians 2, 3 through 8 says this, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, 
but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, Jesus is our perfect example. We look at the life of Jesus. We look at the ministry of Jesus. We look at the character of Jesus. And we are to be conformed into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, again, and I'll reiterate this over and over again, you cannot do that in your own power and your own strength. God comes into our lives, the Holy Spirit indwells us and empowers us to live out this Christian life that God has called us to live out. And so we see that we are to follow after Christ and his example in all of our lives. Now, when we look at these beatitudes and we look at these attitudes that should be present in our life, these characteristics that ought to mark each and every life of each and every believer, um, there's a couple questions uh, when we look at this. How many beatitudes are there? Uh, there are eight or nine. Uh, there's nine blessed statements, uh, but uh, the eighth and the ninth, if you say there, there are nine, they, they talk about the same thing. They, they talk about persecution. Uh, now, I think if you, if you go with, with, with nine, uh, I, I, don't, I don't see a problem with that. But I think eight is the right picture, uh, that there are eight beatitudes. And what you are seeing with the, the, the ninth one, the one that uh, is started in verse 11, it, it's kind of uh, like if you go back to the Proverbs, have, have it, you might remember in the Proverbs, six things God hates and, and seven that he abhors. Uh, it, it's, it's not saying there's going to be 13 things. There's going to be seven things, uh, but usually it's like all of this and I'm upping one. Like I'm adding something on it to kind of infuse and to really drive home my point. And, and the last one is, is really trying to, uh, to emphasize it's ending with kind of this crescendo of this uh, aspect that we need to look at. And, and here in the Beatitudes, what the crescendo ultimately is, is that you can still be blessed while you're being persecuted. It doesn't mean that you've lost God's favor if you find yourself being persecuted. Oftentimes, individuals, what have I done to God that, that I've upset God or I've upset the gods because I have done something, and now they are getting back at me? And sometimes we import this, this wrong theology into Christianity, and if things are going wrong in our life, it's because God is upset with us about something. God doesn't love us. God doesn't want us. And what ultimately Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of heaven is completely flipping everything upside down, well, really right side up. And the truth of the matter is you can be blessed. You can have human flourishing. You can have peacefulness. You can have shalomness. You can have wholeness. Even in the midst of the brokenness of this world where things are coming at you and the enemy is attacking you and things are falling apart because our joy is in the Lord, not in our situations or circumstances. And so ultimately what we see through this, I believe, is 8 and the, the verse 11 and 12 is really undergirding or emphasizing the fact that all of these things are not circumstantial or situational. They are based upon the work of God in the life of each and every believer. Now, one of the reasons why I think there are eight is because we see here uh, what is known as an inclusio. An inclusio is a type of method that is used in, in the Bible to, to really bracket or, or bookcase thoughts together. If you notice in verse 3, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if you look at the eighth beatitude in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're, they're bookends. It's what's known as an inclusio. And what they're saying is that all this uh, goes together. And that's an important fact. That's an important fact for us when we look at God's word, because all eight are to be present in the life of a believer. All eight are to be present in the life of a believer. You can't just say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not really merciful. That's just my character. That's just how I am. I'm just, that's just me. Now, I'm, I'm pretty good at being poor in spirit, and I'm pretty good at, at, at these other four or five, but I, I'm, th- let's just take me as I am. 
That's not, that's not what God's word calls any of us to do. All of these should be present in our life. And so this idea of this inclusio is saying all of this goes together. All of these should be actively working and you should be growing in these things in your life. And you will find uh, inclusios all throughout scripture. In fact, we see that in the Sermon on the Mount that uh, the, the main uh, kind of section uh, that it comprises the, the middle section uh, or the, the central section uh, of, of that uh, is when you find in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And then in, in 7.12, it talks about the law and the prophets as well. And so it includes all of those things together as the central heart of the message. In fact, even the Bible itself is an inclusio. When you think about God, what's the first thing that he created? Uh, when it talks about God and then creation, he created light. Go to Revelation and read the last few verses of Revelation. Well, there's a conclusion about don't add anything. Uh, but when it actually concludes it, it talks about God and there not needing to be any light. It talks about God and light at the very end of Revelation. It talks about God and light at the very beginning of Genesis. And what it's speaking of is the Bible ain't about you. The Bible ain't about me. It's about God and his sovereignty and his control over all things. That's what everything in the Bible is about. It's all about God. It's not about us. We don't read ourselves into the text. We glean the revealed word of God of who he is, what he has said, what is to be applied to our lives, and we are to apply it to our lives. So all eight of these are to be present in the life of a believer. Uh, secondly, uh, when we talk about the attitudes, each of these are developed in believers' life progressively. Now, that's frustrating, but that's the sanctification process. We don't place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden, we have all of this down. God works in our lives progressively in a way to bring these things about. Now, sometimes we see greater strides in some areas than others, but oftentimes our faith is like watching grass grow. If you were to sit in front of a patch of grass and watch it for an hour, you're not going to see much happening. Come back a week from now without anybody doing anything to that patch of grass, you're going to see some significant growth. Come back a year from now, nobody has touched that patch of grass, you're going to see uh, 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 some significant uh, uh, large growth in that patch of grass. Our faith is the same way. Oftentimes, we want to see this radical from day to day, this radical growth. But uh, God wants us to rely, just like the Israelites with the manna in the wilderness. Don't store up for yourself all the manna because it's going to rise. He wants us to rely upon him each and every moment of each and every day. And he's working through the Holy Spirit in our lives to produce these things, and they're produced progressively. Now, I haven't even got to them yet. We're in trouble. Thirdly, as far as the attitudes go, God is the one who produces them in our life. Uh, that will be reiterated again and again and again. God is the one who produces them in our life. In your own power and your own strength, you cannot produce these. And we'll see the, in the third point of the importance of, again, abiding in Christ. Fourthly, when it comes to the attitudes, these are prom the, the, the promises that we find uh, at the end of these, uh, that you'll get the, the kingdom of heaven is yours, you shall be comforted, you'll inherit the earth, you'll be satisfied. Uh, those promises are not rewards earned, they are realities expressed. In, in other words, oftentimes, as we looked at last week, we can be guilty of importing a works-based theology into the life of followers of Jesus Christ. And as followers, we can read this by, by uh, importing a works-based theology in by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So uh, those individuals that, that are poor in spirit, they will automatically get the kingdom of heaven. Well, I think there's a, a, a tangent and an aspect of that that is true. But there are individuals who uh, are poor in spirit who see that they, they need something outside of themselves and they place their faith in Muhammad or they place their faith in the Islamic faith or they see that there's a need outside of themselves and, and so uh, they, they start to seek, seek after some other false religion. Listen, being poor in spirit in itself doesn't save you. It's an aspect of salvation. It's faith in Jesus Christ that saves you and saves you alone. So when we uh, 
produce or we import this workspace theology into the reading of this. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Then we start to think, if we do these things, God is required and owes us these other things. And so what we can do is we can read it to say um, that if I master X, then God owes me Y. When in reality, the Beatitudes are teaching that God has graciously given me Y, therefore my desire, and that which brings me the greatest joy is X. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is already uh, a reality for those that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so you have nothing to boast in. Because it was nothing that you did in and of yourself. You have nothing to boast in. And so why would you live a life apart from being humble and poor in spirit if you understand that the kingdom of heaven is already yours and you didn't get it by doing anything. You received it in faith. And so therefore, it ought to produce in our lives a greater sense of being poor in spirit. We already know that there is coming a a great day of comforting, and so therefore we ought to mourn over our sin. We'll unpack these here in just a second, but these are not rewards earned. They're realities that are expressed. Now let us look at these uh, eight and unpack them just a little bit together. When he tells us that we are to be poor in spirit, what this is saying is that as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to personally acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy. Uh, what This idea of being poor in spirit, it really is the picture of one begging before God. It is living out the, the hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. He blessed, look to thee for grace. Foul to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. It's the reality that I bring nothing to Jesus. That I beg before him, and I understand that apart from him, I have absolutely nothing. Listen, until we see our warts, we'll never see Christ's worth. Until we understand the depravity of our sin, we'll never truly understand the amazingness of God's grace. Now, that is not to say that, that we live with this poor view. Listen, we're created in the image of God. God sent his son Jesus to die for us. And it is for us to have a proper perspective of who we are in Christ Jesus. It says those that are poor in spirit, uh, they will receive the, the kingdom of heaven. And the, they is emphatic on all of these beatitudes. It means only they. You could translate and say only they will Inherit the kingdom of heaven. Only these that are my disciples. Only these that have placed their faith and trust in me. Only these that are living these out through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit as followers and as believers, as children of God adopted into his forever family will experience these rewards. It says the the kingdom of heaven uh, that we will inherit, uh, really the, the idea, this, this kingdom of heaven is in complete opposition to the kingdom of the world in the sense of both worldly leaders as well as the false perception of the Messiah setting up an earthly political kingdom, that his kingdom is not anything of this world. That's exactly what he would tell Pontius Pilate there at, uh, before his crucifixion. Secondly, we see that blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now, it's not necessarily just to, to mourn over uh, the troubles of this world. That's not what uh, Jesus is getting at. What he's talking about is mourning over your own sin and the sin of this world. Do we truly mourn over the sin in our life and in the sin of this world? Or have we become so desensitized to the sin in our life and the sin in in this world that it doesn't move our hearts in any direction one or another? Have we become so calloused and comfortable in our sin? Have we become so callous and comfortable to the sin that is around us that we no longer weep over the sin in our life and the sin in other individuals' lives? When it comes to the sin of others, most of us would prefer to merely just condemn. When it comes to the sin in ourselves, we want to excuse it. Do we see the sin in our own life and does it move us to a sense of mourning over that which Christ Jesus died for. When it comes to 
not just mourning over our own, but other individuals. I think oftentimes we're lockstep with Jesus in Matthew 23 when he is pronouncing and repeating the pronouncements of doom upon these individuals that uh, uh, have rejected him, that are uh, leading individuals astray from the truth. Uh, But then we fail to continue walking with him to the end of the chapter when he is found weeping over the city. And he is found mourning over the sin that individuals find themselves in. And we would be well served to mourn over our own sin and the sin of those around us and the sin of those in this world. Now, I do think that there's something important with the way that we mourn and what is the motive of our mourning. And I think there's a difference and found in mourning between King Saul and King David of the Old Testament. Remember when King Saul was found mourning uh, when Samuel said that the kingdom has been taken away from you, but what was he mourning over? Oh, don't, don't, don't take the kingdom. Don't take the kingdom away from me. Don't, don't take my position away from me. Don't take my power away from me. Don't, don't remove the kingdom from me. But what about David when he was caught in his sin with Bathsheba and he began to mourn? He said, oh, Lord, don't take your spirit away from me. Oh, you can have my position. You can have my power. You can have my prestige. You can have everything that this world has to offer. But please don't leave me because I need you. Now, oftentimes we mourn over the sin of what it's going to cost us. But we fail to mourn over the sin in our lives and what it costs God. And at the heart of what Jesus is saying is that we mourn over our sin and the sin of that which individuals are perpetrating around us because that sin is something that Christ Jesus went to the cross for. He said, blessed are those that mourn. They'll be comforted. When we confess, we find comfort for our sin. When we cry out to God uh, to move within the brokenness of this world, there's comfort. In fact, this is the same root word that we get, parakletos, the, the word for the Holy Spirit who will be given to us as our comforter. Listen, when we're mourning over sin, the Holy Spirit is there to say, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You are loved. He's given us a helper. He's given us a comforter. And one day we'll step into his kingdom and we'll experience the ultimate comfort. Thirdly, he tells us, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. We often have a a misunderstanding of the word meek. Maybe you've heard this, if you've heard individuals preach on this specific beatitude, that meekness is kind of like a a horse that has a lot of power but keeps it in reserve. It's not expending its full power. has the capability of doing so. It's kind of power in in reserve. It's kind of the opposite of what what Bobby Knight once said. Bobby Knight, uh, the Indiana basketball coach uh, and, and great chair thrower, says, the meek may well inherit the earth, but they rarely get rebounds. I thought that was funny, but I think that's the attitude is that if you're meek, you're actually going to miss out on something. You're, you're not actually living up to your potential if you're meek. And what God's word is saying is, no, 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 no. Meek should be manifested in the life of each and every believer. That we live this life of, of power in, in reserve as we rely upon God Almighty. And in the end, the military elite, the financially shrewd, the politically powerful are not the ones who inherit the earth. It is the meek. It is those that understand who they are in Christ Jesus. It's those that find their identity in Christ and Christ alone. The one who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is those that will inherit the earth. Fourth, we are told, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We don't really experience this a whole lot. Very few of us have truly experienced true hunger, true thirst. But for the individuals that Jesus is preaching to, they they would have understood this uh, very well. Especially the thirsting aspect. 
for us, we can just go to, to the refrigerator and get a bottle of water, or they, it's even now built into our refrigerator. We can just put a cup, a glass underneath it. Water's going to come out. We can go to the tap. We can turn it on up. For them, they had to go to a well. They had to travel sometimes great distances. And if that well was ever shut up or that well run dry, they were in some serious trouble until they found another well. And he's saying the way that you hunger for food and the way that you thirst for water ought to be the same way you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not the imputed righteousness that we get when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but the righteousness of a holy life. Not a hunger and thirst for that. There's been a couple times in my life that I fasted. I, I know it looks like I've been on a 10-year one right now, but there have been some times in my life where, where I, have, I have fasted. And when I, I can tell you what, when that fast is over, I mean, you, you're at the refrigerator, you, you're just whatever. Pickles and, and, and cheese and spaghetti that probably should have been thrown out a couple days ago. But you know what? I mean, you're going for it. Raw broccoli. I mean, whatever. You just, whatever there is to eat in that moment, you are just starving. Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness today? And if we don't, there ought to be a check engine light coming on in all of our hearts. When I was an addict, there was no link I would not go to to find my dope. If I was out, I was up at the crack of dawn. I mean, I'm trying to find who's got what, where's got what. Can, can you get up? Can you meet me? Can you? And I'm, I'm searching. I am seeking for that drug. Now, why would I ever, and I find myself doing this at times, why would I have ever put more energy in finding something that is so destructive to my life as opposed to putting that same amount of energy and not more to something that is such a blessing in my life? And the righteousness of God, the holiness of God at work in my life is far better than anything that this world has to offer. But oftentimes we take it for granted. We can just go and turn on the faucet. And there's the water. Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? He said, blessed are those, the, the true humanity. You'll find shalomness. You'll find peacefulness. You'll find wholeness when you make that your singularly focused endeavor. Those that hunger and thirst, they, they will be satisfied. He goes on to say that blessed are the, the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, mercy is this idea of compassion, uh, but compassion that is moved to action. So merciful is to see individuals in a state of destruction or despair and to step in and to actually be moved to action as a result of it. Think about the, the father and the story of the prodigal son. It says he was moved with compassion and he ran to his son. There was action that was involved. It's not just I have compassion over somebody that finds themselves in a broken state or in a broken position, but we are moved to action to actually run to them in some regard and in some way. Mercy in light of Christ, our perfect example, uh, therefore, is kindness and generosity and loving sacrifice on behalf of the wretched and the unworthy. And we're to be merciful. We're not to remove ourselves from the world and, and just look at individuals and say, well, they had it coming to them. Uh, we, individuals who have received mercy by God Almighty, should extend mercy to other individuals as well. Because when it says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, the reality is we have already received mercy. We continue to receive mercy by God's grace. And therefore, as an extension, we ought to show that mercy to other individuals as well. Then we see, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, I think oftentimes, and it's, it's not wrong to, to look at this beatitude and think pureness is a part in the sense of holiness as well. I think that's an aspect of it. But the word pure is, is really talking about a single-minded focus. It is that we are having a single-minded focus in regards to pursuing after the things of the Lord. Think about Psalm 86, 11 through 12. It says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your, your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. 
I will glorify your name forever. That's the idea of pure heart. With a pure heart, I will glorify your name forever. In other words, that is the singular focus of the life of a believer. My heart is pure. In other words, uh, we think in the New Testament in terms of James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. double minded. So the idea is that a purified heart, a pure heart is the antithesis of a double-minded person who's got one foot in uh, the kingdom of the Lord and one foot in the world. So don't be double-minded. You're not going to see God that way. There's only frustration when you have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom and you're trying to straddle that fence. You're not going to see God clearly that way because you're being uh, bombarded with all of these things that are, are, are clouding the picture. He says you now have a single heart, a single focus of your heart. Don't be double-minded. Live for and after the Lord uh, all your days. And he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Uh, this idea of being a peacemaker is to not have a compromising spirit, uh, not a peacekeeper uh, that foregoes true peace by replacing it with the posture of one walking on eggshells. We have a lot of individuals that are peacekeepers and not peacemakers. Listen, peacemakers involve sometimes hard conversations. Peacemakers, uh, Jesus wasn't a peacekeeper. He didn't come and just, just say, okay, there's sin in the world. Hey, try to figure it out, you know. He came in and he died on a cross. He took action to bring peace to this world so that those that place their faith and trust in him can uh, be forgiven of their sins and brought into a right relationship with him. Lastly, we talk about this persecution, and it seems so foreign to us. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then to emphasize that, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I was talking with, with, with Seth this, this week on uh, the recap podcast that, that we do, and we were talking about individuals that proclaim to be followers of Jesus Christ, but yet... Uh, we don't see a lot of the fruit uh, in the life of believers, and, and, and why, why is that? And I told him I think there's, there's two reasons. One, they're either not truly saved or they've never been truly discipled. But there's also a third kind of component in that, and that is the atmosphere in which we live in here in the West. We don't really face a ton of persecution. Our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, if they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, uh, their village could be burned, their home could be burned. Uh, I know of individuals that are ministering in a part of Africa right now, and it's in a kind of Muslim-dominated area, and uh, an individual gave their, their, their life to Jesus Christ. Uh, they couldn't go into the bank anymore. They couldn't go into the marketplace anymore. Uh, their family completely shunned them and kicked them out. They were homeless. They lost everything. They lost their place to live. They lost their, their financial means of supporting themselves and their family, and they lost their home all because they placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. What would the invitation time look like if all of us said, Come to Christ. Come as you are. And we started singing that. And we said, on the other side of this, you may lose your house, lose your job. You're not going to have any financial means to support you or your family. And very well, there could be a mob at your door this very afternoon to beat you and your family because of the fact that you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. How many individuals would raise their hand? How many individuals would sign up for that? You see, in the context here, it's easy. I raise my hand, I walk an aisle. I'm a, I don't really have to live it out because there's nothing on the other side of my profession of faith that is really going to require a whole lot from me in the context of the atmosphere that I live in currently. And when we understand what we are truly saying when we give our life to Jesus Christ, that means that I give all to you. So let come what may because my trust is in you. And what Jesus is saying is that our brothers and sisters in Christ that face that true persecution, they can still be blessed in the middle of that. And so can we. In the brokenness of this world, in the brokenness of this life, there is still joy and peacefulness because it's not based upon our circumstances or situations. It is based upon what Christ Jesus has done. And i got to move through this real quick. All right, thirdly, the Beatitudes come from abiding in Christ. 
to reiterate last week, we must abide in Christ. We must remain in Christ. John 15, 3 through 5 says this, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. You can do nothing. You can't live out these beatitudes apart from Christ. We must abide in Christ. Well, how do we do that? Real quickly. We actively abide in Christ when we prioritize time in God's word. We abide in Christ when we prioritize our time to be spent in God's word. John 15, 7, just a few verses past uh, what we just read, says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you. We need to spend time with God so that his word is abiding in us. How do we abide in Jesus? We abide in his word. We spend time in his word. Secondly, we actively abide in Christ when we talk to God. We need to spend time in prayer. We are abiding in Christ when we spend time in prayer, uh, acknowledging our need for him. In John 15, 7, it goes on to say, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you in accordance with the abiding of God's word that we are spend time in God, uh, spend time with God in prayer. Uh, lastly, we actively abide in Christ when we trust God. When we take what it is that, that God has shown us, when we take what it is that has been revealed to us in his word, when we take what it is that he's impressed upon our heart to be obedient to, uh, we abide in Christ when we trust in him, we lean in him, we rely upon him. These are the ways that we abide in Christ. And when we do that, we will start to see the Beatitudes progressively uh, being manifest in greater capacities in our life each and, each and every day. So for us, when we read these, I pray that we all read these with a look at our own life to see in which areas of these are we falling short. And then we need to cry out to God and ask for him to empower us and help us to live them out. Because we live in between the inaugurated kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom. And we are called to communicate the kingdom with both our lips and our lives. Now in this moment right now. Uh, I want to take an opportunity to extend an invitation. And I pray in light of what we have looked at, uh, you would be reminded of the fact uh, that to experience any kind of joy, any kind of peace, any kind of wholeness, you must first place your faith and trust in Jesus. You must recognize that you have no power in and of yourself. You must cry out to the Lord, and you must place your faith and trust in Him. But listen, when you place your faith and trust in Him, I want you to understand that that does not mean that everything is going to be perfect in your life from here on forward. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have any trials and you're not going to have any tribulations. What it means is that Christ Jesus now holds you secured in His righteous right hand, and there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. For He has overcome the world. And you can spend all your time and energy chasing after the things of the world. And they will not suffice. They will not satisfy. They will not give you an inheritance that is unperishable and undefiled and will not fade being guarded in heaven for you. They will not give you new life. They will not give you forgiveness of your sins. Only in Christ Jesus will you find those things. And so in this moment, I ask you to bow your heads and your hearts with me.